It's, it's an honor beyond description to be here, to be able to share with you from God's Word. I'm currently serving at uh, the conference office as stewardship and um, church planting director, and I'd like to thank Pastor Quinton for inviting me over and for putting together this Grateful Living series. And one of the things that we are going to be uh, seeing and exploring is that stewardship, which is just a biblical word for management, it's much more about than just about money. And this is one of the things that we want to communicate through this message. We are managers of all the good things, of all the treasures, of all the resources that God gave to our life. In fact, we see here that there's eight uh, dimensions of um, stewardship that, we can, uh, that God wants us to excel at. So there's time, talents, testimony, treasure, temple, our body, territory, our planet, tribe, and truth. So you see that today I'm going to be talking about treasure, and that's only one of these multi-dimensional um, set of gifts that God has given to us, that has he has bestowed upon us. But before I jump into that, I would like to start with a word of prayer. Eternal Father, you have spoken in various times and in various ways to your people in the past. But in these last days, you spoke through us, through your Son, Jesus, the incarnate word. And we pray that you will open the mouth of your servant to proclaim that word in the power of the Spirit. Father, I also pray that this same Spirit will open the hearts of its hearers, here assembled today, to receive your holy gospel and write on their hearts your holy law, even as you have promised. All of these gracious Father, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, let everyone say, Amen. My question for us this morning is this. Who am I as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, as a son, as a daughter of God, and how does my identity in Christ reflect on how I handle the financial resources, the money that God has given us. I want to start by sharing with you a story. Has anyone in this room heard about a man called Max Israel Munk? Not many. Max Israel Munk was a Jewish Adventist living in Germany right at the time where the Nazis rise to power. In 1933, Mr. Monk decided to withdraw his membership from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The thing is, when you are part of a hated minority, you start picking up things that the rest of us don't. So while the church was, was still, by and large, trying to figure out who this new man who was in charge of Germany was, his name was Adolf Hitler, while they're trying to still figure out, is he a good guy, is he a bad guy, what's, what's going on here, Munch and other Jewish people had already noted that for them, just the fact that they were Jewish would mean that they would be in trouble in the future. So Mr. Munch decided that the most reasonable thing for him to do to protect his church and his church members from trouble in the future would be to disassociate himself from the church, to withdraw his membership 
from the church. So he did so to protect them. Not long after, Monk spent some time in the Buchenwald concentration camp until he was released in 1938, at which time the conference president tried to help him leave Germany and try to get a job, but they realized that it was pretty much impossible. So they finally gave up on helping him, and the conference president approached Mr. Monk and says, Mr. Monk, I am sorry to say this, but you cannot come in touch with us anymore. Please do not contact us. Please do not seek us. We cannot help you, and we do not want to be related to you. In the same way, church members of his congregation were also told and advised that they should have no kind of contact whatsoever with Mr. Monk. They were told that they should not visit him, they should not talk to him, they should not write letters to him, they should not visit him, leave him alone, because association with the Jews would be highly dangerous and controversial in the times that they were in. At one point during the war, Mr. Munks' daughter wrote a letter to the pastor that was the leader of the church's welfare program in Germany, similar to our Adventist community services today, asking if there were any other Jews, any other Jewish Adventists that were in need of help. She received a letter back. And the reply of this church officer was, as cynically as it is, I have not counted them yet. As if he had not had time or he was too busy to get around for these kinds of requests for aid. Or that he was too afraid and too scared to even open those letters. So, Max Israel Monk and his family were pretty much on their own with no support of their church family. But before I tell you how this story ends, let me first invite you to open the Bible with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 19 and verse 16 to 21. And someone came to him, to Jesus, and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And Jesus answered back to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life... Keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus replied, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What, what am I still lacking? And Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete... Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have a treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom 
of God. This young, wealthy, and influential man came before Jesus to ask a deep and a meaningful existential question. This question, no doubt, was afflicting his soul, perhaps depriving him from his very sleep. What must I do to be saved? There was something in the life of this young man that was missing. And before Jesus attempted to reply to his question, he first asked, why are you inquiring about me for what is good? There's only one who is good, and God alone. Jesus was testing him and trying to see, why are you asking this question to me? Why is my opinion going to be important to you? And of course, by the silence and by the acknowledgement of the rich young man, he realized, he comprehended that he was before the divine Messiah. So with that out of the way, once this man had the attention of Jesus, Jesus, asked, Jesus replied to him, keep the commandments. You know which one they are. Yes, but I have been doing this, Master, and I'm still feeling something lacks inside of me. And Jesus says, would you like to know the ultimate answer, the solution to your problem is your riches. They are standing in between you and the eternal life that you're aiming. They are an idol to you. So if you want to be complete, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come, follow me, become my disciple, and we are going to change this world together. Jesus knew exactly what was the stumbling block in the life of this young man. Often when I teach this story, when I tell this story to some of my friends who are new to the Bible, they ask, but Joseph, is Jesus asking this from all of us? Are we all supposed to give and to sell everything that we own and give it to the poor to follow him? And I say, no. All of us, yes, we need to be willing should God tell that to us. But notice that this man is asking Jesus a very specific question. Lord, how do I, what do I do to inherit this eternal life? I'm doing all these things, but still there's something missing. So Jesus gives to him the prescription as, as, as a, a, a faithful doctor of exactly the antidote that he needed. And of course, Jesus was right. Because money was indeed an idol into, his, into this man's life. Because he preferred not to go through the burden of selling and disposing of his wealth, of all that he attached to it, his identity, to follow Jesus. You know, there were other rich people in the Bible. And Jesus didn't ask them to do the same. Nicodemus, for one, he was also a rich, wealthy ruler in Israel. And to him, Jesus says, you need to be born again. Jesus didn't talk to him about riches. And you know why? Nicodemus, in the aftermath of Jesus' death and resurrection, sold all of his wealth to support the fledgling church. So, of course, for Nicodemus, it was not a problem. It was something different. So, that leads me to another question. Why then? How is it that this happens? 
Why did this young ruler walk out after receiving such an impressive invite? Well, Jesus explains to us. And if you come to me, if you turn to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, we will discover the answer to that question. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and what, everyone? And wealth. Or in some translations, or mammon, which is the god of, of money, person, the personified entity of money. In this passage, Jesus very clearly states that money can have godlike attributes, as was the case in the rich young ruler's life. I, I must confess that I struggle to understand how can money be an idol? And if you ask around, if you go out in the street and you ask people, do you think that money is an idol for you? Guess what their response is going to be? No? What are you asking me this? But until I reflected on my past experience working as an investment banker, I realized and I started to understand what is the depth of idolatry that money can have into our life. Let me share with you a few examples here. I remember talking to this colleague of mine, and he said he was working too late. We were both working too late that day. He said, Joseph, I'm looking forward to take all of my two weeks of holidays this year because I want to take my wife and my kids to this very expensive place in Europe for a ski resort trip. Then I was just listening. And then later on, a few minutes later, he was complaining to me that he became a liar, that he started to lie to his actual wife so that he could stay longer in the office. So he would often say, no, 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 wife, oh, yes, I'm, I'm going home, I'm going home. And then he would be still working. And he said, no, no, yes, I'm going home, I just had a meeting. And he, would, and he said he, held, he was hating himself from what he was becoming. Not only that, he said, Joseph, you know what? I'm, I'm seeing my children growing up in the horizontal. I go back to my home at night, and when I see my kids, they are already sleeping. By the time that I leave to work, they were still sleeping. All of that for the name of money. Another colleague, after just receiving, becoming a father of twins, the following day was again in the office, faithfully from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. Not even one day of rest to enjoy his kids. Another friend of mine, shared with me how angry and how upset he was because one of his peers in their total compensation of the year made, mind you, $10,000 more than himself among a very large sum. But he was upset because that was speaking towards his identity. All of a sudden, that meant that he was second. He was not first. He was not the top performer. He was not the favorite of the company. He was the second. That means, who knows, maybe he could be fired. On and on, I would hear stories and thoughts and statements that would communicate things like, my money will take care of me. My money will buy me good health. My treasure tells me how much is my worth. It gives me security. It buys me peace. It tells me who I am. Do these statements sound a little bit odd to your ears? If yes, so they should. 
because money often receives the credit for things that can only be given by God alone. God is the one who can give us peace. God is the one who gives us security, health, the, well, the, the well-being of our family. And yet, we often attribute that to our bank account. So if money can have this God-like power, this God-like influence into our lives, how do I shield myself from that? Could it be that just some people are naturally good at differentiating between the two, but others are not? Would God have a solution, an antidote for that curse? And the answer, my friends, is yes, he does. And that answer is called tithe. Let's take a look into it. Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 30. It reads like this. Thus, all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is what, everyone? It is holy to the Lord. Keep that word. We're going to get back to it. For every tenth part of the herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. So they had this practice. They would put all of their, their, their new lambs, their new cattle inside of this fold. They would close it. And then there's going to be a very narrow passage. Only, only one animal could pass at the same time. And someone would, would, have, would be holding a stick with some kind of a red ink or a dye at the top of it. So as these animals passed, they would mark, mark every tenth animal. And that was the one that was going to be devoted um, to tithe. And the Bible says that whatever animal you, you mark, this is, this is the one. You cannot change it. If it's uh, defective, it's defective. If it's healthy, it's healthy. But it's a tenth part precisely. In the Old Testament times, this was the system that God put together so that he could ensure the continuation of the activities of the temple. So he could support the work of the priests and of the Levites. Everyone was supposed to contribute with 10% of their increase, either animals or uh, crops. It's simple, isn't it? It's like Katie was sharing with us at the children's stories. It's just like one chip Amongst the tenth chip, in, in the Hebrew mindset, the tenth part is the smallest part. It's the minimum. So a tithe was also a word for the, the minimum. So God is saying just a little bit. But you can ask this question, but Joseph, look, do you think that God really needs our money? Like, wh why does he ask us to give that? Like, does he need it? Let me tell you, my friend, I don't know if you, what's your answer to that, but my answer is no, not at all. God doesn't need it. Let's take a look here in Psalms chapter 50, verses 10 to 12. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountain, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. So God presents himself as the creator of the world, and as such, he claims ownership over everything that is in it. So why the 10%? Perhaps you're starting to see a pattern emerging here. Our riches, our resources, our treasures, and everything we got, they are not really ours. They are God's. So God says, of that 10%, I want you to separate, to make it holy, to make it special, just for me. Set aside this 10%. And by doing so, what we are doing symbolically is that we are acknowledging that fact that God is our creator and that he has sovereignty over our lives through this action. 
Have you ever come to think about that? This is what it communicates. It's not about the tithe. It's about the message that you give to God and to yourself by practicing it. I'm saying, symbolically, I acknowledge that God is the owner of everything that I own, and I am returning to Him 10% of that in recognition of His authority in my life. And friends, this act is not done based on fear, but rather on gratitude and love. For God is the one who provides for me. He provides me with life, with salvation, with hope, with the means to survive. And while we acknowledge that about God, something really cool happens in the process. By returning the tithes, we're also symbolically acknowledging something about money. Do you want to know what? We basically look at that dollar bill and we say, you know what? You do not own me. I am happy to dispose you by returning you to God where it's going to be used for a good cause. In fact, the best of causes, the salvation of others. And just like that, money starts losing its God-like properties and becomes what it really is, an object, a means to an end, which is to glorify God and to bless others. This is how the tithes were used in the Old Testament. But what about now? How does the Adventist church apply these biblical principles in managing tithes today? I'd like to share with you a small video that was put together so that, that will explain to you how it works in a modern-day setting. Thank you for playing this video. And I hope that gives, that gives you a sense of the impact that uh, our tithes have around the world and the great responsibility with which it is handled. But I'd like to enter into a little bit of a sensitive topic now. Because you can say to me, Joseph, maybe the church worldwide is well audited and re-audited for transparency and accountability. There's hundreds of checks and balances. But you don't know what I know. I know some stories that would make angels blush. Or perhaps you say, I don't agree with that or this other position of the church. All right. So first of all, I do not know which stories we're talking about specifically. And I don't know if they're true or gossip. And of course, as you would know, as Christians, we, don't, we do not judge things based on hearsay. However, let me share with you a story that I believe speaks into that topic. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to, to 44. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. This story that happened a few hours before Jesus' last moments on earth. It says here that Jesus was sitting down opposite to the treasury. And he began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. So uh, these, these big guys with, with, with this expensive clothing, they would just turn off the bucket full of coins. And you see this, this big... Um, commotion around it. In verse 42, a poor widow came and she put in two small copper coins which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors 
of the treasury. For they all put out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. That incredible story happens, as I said, a few moments before the events that were unfolding, the crucifixion happened a few days before. That poor widow, not only she returned her tithe, but her offerings. And in fact, her tithes and offerings combined were equivalent to 100% of the amounts that she had. Why did she do that? Was it to be seen by other people, by other rich men, so that she could get pride of that? I don't think so. But could it be that through her act of worship, through this action, she was making a statement of faith? She was saying, I trust that my God will provide for me. And I'll give him everything I own because I myself am owned by him. And I know that my God is not going to abandon me. I love my God. I love his mission. I love his temple. And what was Jesus' response to that? You know, imagine if Jesus would run towards her and say, no, 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 no. Look, lady, please, please, don't, don't do this. You have no idea what these wicked priests, these well-fed priests are going to do with this money. They are plotting to take my own life, and the money that, with which they are going to use to buy my soul is going to be taken out of your very mites. Please, don't do this. Keep it to yourself. Maybe, maybe buy some food for you. Is that what Jesus did? No, he didn't do that. You know what? Because he realized that she was doing an act of worship. And I believe that that act of this poor widow reminded Jesus of why he came to give his life for this planet. Because there were still people that hoped in him. And for them, they have, he had come. What I learned from this story is that giving and returning our tithes and giving our offerings, our, our offerings is much more than just a financial support to a cause, to a mission. It is an act of worship. It is a statement of faith that we put our trust in God. My responsibility is from my pocket to the offering box. Whatever people are going to do from that point onwards is between them and God. And there's, of course, checks and balances to prevent these things to happen. And I believe, and many do so, that our church is one of the top class institutions as far as accountability goes. However, even if this church was as corrupt as the church in the times of Jesus, as the priest in the temple, I would still give my tithe. Because this is a matter of obedience between me and my God. It's a statement of faith. God has asked me. He has commanded me. I will obey because I trust in him. Because I know that he's going to provide for me. But Joseph, what if I do not return my tithes? What is this going to symbolically communicate? You're talking about what this symbolically means and what you're communicating. What is the, the, the action of faith behind that external action? 
I'll tell you, my friend. If you open to me, the Bible with me in Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. It's the last book of your Old Testament just before the Gospel of Matthew. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. You can follow it with me here in the screen as well. Will a man rob God? Is that possible to rob the one who owns everything? Yet, God says, you are robbing me. But do you say, how? How have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Whoa. Sorry, I should have warned you that this would be strong medicine right here. But I believe that God is not measuring words and he's being very transparent with his people because as we said, this is a matter of obedience. This is a matter of worship. What God is saying that withholding or misdirecting tithes and offerings is comparable to robbery. So in God himself is the offended party. And as a consequence of, of, of that, God says that the entire nation of Israel was cursed with a curse. So spiritual blessings are withhold from those that withhold God's holy tithes. And if that was true to God's people then, it also remains true to God's people today. For Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But luckily to us, this passage doesn't end here. Because it continues. It says, verse 10, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer from you, so that you will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will you vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts, of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. What a beautiful passage. There's just two things that I want you to notice from this passage. First, that God commands that the whole tithe to be brought into one place, the storehouse, a centralized location that is able to distribute God's holy portion amongst the gospel workers according to the needs of the field. Before the times of Jesus, this place was the temple in Jerusalem. After the time of Jesus, this place was the church in Jerusalem. And in our days, if you are Seventh-day Adventist, this place is the general conference. If you look at that video that we just watched, you realize that we may have the impression that the tithes, they are kept in the local conferences. But in reality, this is just a shortcut because if the money would go all the way to the general conference first, what the general conference would do would distribute it to the fields in the same proportions that we saw in the video. That is why we don't do this transaction back and forth. We just, the money just flows one way, one way up. But in reality, all of these resources are being channeled through by general conference. The general conference is distributing this according to whom? According to the church manual who was voted by the members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in the conference session through its delegates. So this is why we believe that we are practicing the principles that are laid for us in these, these scriptures. And I think that this is something we can all be 
glad about. When sometimes I speak to my colleagues that are pastors of different denominations, their jaws drop to understand how much we can accomplish, how much mission can be done because of our structure. They, they are amazed because we do not have such an organized system. And of course, we didn't invent any of that. This is guided by biblical principles and perfect with time to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But that's the minor point. The big point that I want to show to you is that there is a blessing here that God says, you can tempt me on this. You can test me on this. Test me on these ties. If you don't trust me, test me on this. Put me to the test and see if I'm not going to bless you tremendously with all kinds of spiritual blessings. I'm not preaching prosperity gospel here. God can bless us in many more, many ways, financial being one of them, but not the only one and not the most important one either. God says in the Bible, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. But here he says there's one thing that I encourage you to put me to test, which is in my tithes and offerings. Friends, tithes and offerings, as we have seen here, it's a matter of trust in God, of responding to him in gratefulness for what he has done, of communicating through this that money does not control us, but we are servants of the Most High God. And, you know, and, and, and I heard that sometimes some people say, Joseph, but what if I get my tithes and, and I divert it to a different cause or project or to help the poor? Uh, does the Bible, you know, doesn't the Bible say about that? And I say, no. The tithe needs, because it's holy, needs to be used according to the specific instructions of God that are very clear. With your offerings, yes, you can direct your offerings to whatever the God leads you to. But with tithes being holy, we cannot do it with it anything different than he asks us. If you give $100 to your son to buy something specific or to your daughter and they come up with something different, even though it's nice, they were not fulfilling your command. They're not fulfilling your desire. And it's not different with tight. All of it needs to go to the one storehouse, in this case, the general conference. But Joseph, can God really bless me? I mean, my budget is tight. 10% would go a long way here for me. Well, I think you have to put God on test on this, but I'd like to share with you one video of one example, and I'm sure that many of you have examples of God's faithfulness in your life in this area, but I'm going to share with you just one story of how God did that in practice. Let's take a look at this video. With colorful clothes and herds of cattle, the Maasai people are spread throughout this land. Watch as one very wealthy Maasai tribal leader does the unthinkable. He puts his faith in God first, before everything else. This is AWR 360. We are in Tanzania, a country Tanzania. famous for the Maasai people, known for their distinctive customs and brightly colored dress. They welcomed me with a native jumping dance. From a standing position, these warriors can vertically spring over three feet high. Their smiles made me feel right at home, and they even allowed me to carry one of their precious babies. I enjoyed every moment and fell in love with these dear people who received me with open arms. The Maasai have a semi-nomadic lifestyle. Even this village we are at right now is temporary. Every aspect of their lives revolves around their cattle. 
the cows determine where the village moves based on where the herds can eat grass. Cattle is their currency and their main source of food. Nothing is left to waste. Even their huts are made of cow dung. For a man to give away his cattle is foolish and unheard of. That's why Abraham's story is amazing. He owns more than a thousand cows. I have over a thousand cows and I'm considered rich by my Maasai people. But something was missing in my life. Abraham's heart was convicted at an evangelistic series and he became a baptized member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Most Maasai cannot read or write so they learn from the radio. Abraham was overjoyed when he tuned in AWR. It was a topic of tithing that really caught his attention. They spoke of faithfulness and trusting God and that 10% belongs to him. As his eyes took in all that he owned, he knew what he had to do. In that moment, he made a commitment. Like Jacob of old, he marked every tenth cow. By the time he was finished, more than 100 cows have been designated for God. My friends and neighbors thought I was crazy. To the Maasai, 100 cows is worth about $30,000. You just don't give away the most important resource you own. Despite the ridicule, Abraham remained faithful to God. His neighbors stopped laughing nine months later. They were shocked to see that many of Abraham's cows gave birth to twins and his sheep triplets. Cows rarely have twins. It's considered historic when they do. Immediately, everyone understood that this miracle came from a higher power. After the Maasai witnessed Abraham's faithfulness, they approached the union president, Pastor Godwin Lickendile, and said, we want to tithe too. Pastor Godwin was amazed and said, are you Adventist? They replied, no, but we want God to bless us just like he's blessing Abraham. And praise the Lord, nine months later, their cows had twins too. Here is something else amazing. Every time a thief would steal any of Abraham's cattle, the cows would always return home as if guided by unseen hands. Now thieves fear stealing from Abraham. I praise God for Adventist World Radio. Abraham credits AWR for changing his life. Everyone sees that the more he gives, the more he is blessed. Thanks to Abraham's testimony, today over 80 Messiah have accepted Jesus and have been baptized. And all of them now listen to Adventist World Radio. These kinds of miracles not only happened a long time ago, they are happening today. Our Heavenly Father is ready to multiply your blessings. The unreachable are being reached by Adventist World Radio. Together, we can finish the work. We need your faithful prayers and dedicated support. We all can look forward to the day when we see the fruits of our labor and praise God for allowing us 
to be part of his good work. This is AWR 360. As you can see, when God says that he will open the windows of heaven and pour upon uh, blessings until it overflows, he was not joking. And I believe that this gives us confidence to place the matter of tithes and offerings upon his hands. Abraham tested God. He trusted in him through his tithes, and God looked after him. But do you remember Max Israel Monk from the beginning of my sermon, that Jewish Adventist during Nazi Germany that was virtually abandoned by his church? He spent the early 1940s moving from concentration camp to concentration camp, going through hardships and misery that you and I could only imagine. Eventually, even though uh, they were told by the church leaders not to visit, two church members eventually did visit uh, Monk and his family occasionally. They, they brought a little bit of food. Somehow, Monk survived the war. And when it was over, he asked to become a Seventh-day Adventist church member again. He asked his church, the one that has failed him, he asked them for forgiveness and he was freely offering the same. What I want you to know as well is that throughout all of these years, whenever he was able physically to do so, from 1933, from the time that he withdrew his membership until the time he came back, Monk says that he kept faithfully returning his tithes and offerings to the very same church that was unfaithful to him. Why? Because this is who he is. He trusts in God. He loves the things that God loves. He loves his schools, his churches, his mission. He understands that one thing is to do his part before God. A separate thing is what other men will do about it. So Mark's Israel monk also trusted in God through his tithes. And God looked after him and after his family. Will that be your story? also. Let's pray. Blessed Father, you are above all in gifts, and out of your giving you have taught me the way to a fuller identification of myself with you. Not only your gift of Jesus and your gift of the Spirit, but every day your gifts are about us like manna in the wilderness. Father, all that we have belongs to you, and all of our money, we are only trustees of it. Father, please command its use as shall please you, and give us the experience of the giver's joy. Let us see clearly the scene of covetousness and deepen our hatred of its practice. In the name of your unspeakable gift, be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen.